Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership and emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Angular Insights. We're delighted to be back. This is our first session of the year, and we have a terrific session for you today. We have Darius Contractor. He is a growth and product leader, and he's going to be talking about his experience with 20 years of growth learnings. David, take it away. Great. Thanks, Anne. Darius, really happy to have you here. Let me give a quick intro. So Darius, he's a growth-focused product and engineering leader, angel investor, entrepreneur. He's grown companies and teams at companies like Tickle, Bebo, Forward.us, Dropbox, Facebook, Airtable, where he and I work together, and now Vendor. Along the way, he's learned how to go viral, scaling your growth infrastructure, agile management, rapid iteration, product strategy basically every aspect of growing uh, your product and your audience. And I'll, I'll just say personally, Darius and I met actually before uh, we were both at Airtable. I had just started at Airtable. I was the first kind of growth person at Airtable. We somehow got introduced because Darius is just the quintessential growth person. So he was nice enough to host me at Dropbox, where he was at the time with one of their like amazing chef-made lunches. And then we were lucky enough for him to come join us a year later, and he kind of took over the, the helm as the, the next head of growth. And I think that's actually really interesting because it points to the fact that growth changes at a company over time, right? Like the type of growth I was doing is way different than the type of growth Darius was doing at Airtable, and we'll talk all about that stuff. Darius, welcome. Uh, thanks for being here. Great. Thanks for having me, David and Anne. To get started, you've had a, this long, super interesting career. So that's kind of where I wanted to start. Like, where did you start in your career? T tell us the story and the progression. So many different cool types of companies along the way. Yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a, you know, my own path. So even in college, I realized that I love technology, but I really wanted to use technology to build things for people. I'm less of a deep technologist than what I think of as kind of a technology packager, like someone who takes something that works and makes it ideally work for everyone. And so you see that early in my career with social networking, like using the power of computing to connect people and make it a lot easier to like have fun with your friends and share photos and share thoughts online. And then I kind of did this pivot more towards growth uh, from like engineering and product work to really focusing on growth and like A-B testing, optimization, you know, going kind of like one to 10 or 10 to 100. And then also I pivoted a little bit from social into more B2B SaaS. Like, so my early career was at Bebo and then I went to Facebook at one point and I found that I, after Dropbox and, and Airtable, I really just love this B2B SaaS world where you're building products and helping companies succeed at their missions and people are just paying you directly for like valuable software you create. I really love that business model and I saw a lot of expansion future in it. So that's kind of been the overall flow of my career from like social to SaaS and from engineering to growth to like general product. Right. Was there a specific catalyst that moved you from pure engineering to growth? Like, what was that transition like? Why did you make the, the leap? You know, one thing I was kind of lucky to do very early in my career is the first place I joined out of school was a little company called Tickle. And a lot of people haven't heard of it, but it was one of the first really viral growth shops. We had this, what type of dog are you test that went viral around the web and everyone was like taking the test. And one funny thing about it is that a lot of people would actually get Chihuahua and they'd be like, I'm not a Chihuahua. And we'd be like, that guy's totally a Chihuahua. And so like that would go viral and people would want to figure out whether they're golden retrievers or pit bulls or what have you. Then we had an IQ test that went very viral and actually made us money because people would pay to figure out like, okay, how do I improve my IQ? And so we did a lot of... That sounds like, uh, it's like BuzzFeed before BuzzFeed, right? It can be a little sugary at times, but it, it's, it's a lot of fun. And so that's kind of where I cut my teeth on the viral side of it. When was this? Just to like put it in context, uh, internet history context. Okay. Yeah. Like it was like just a little while after Taylor Swift was born, I think back in 2002 to 2000. Okay. Let's only use Taylor Swift's age as a reference. <laughs> so, uh, this was what Taylor Swift was five. That's when I started. 
Pretty much. Back then, we didn't even know what A-B testing was. Like, at least we didn't use it as a term. Like, we would just, hmm. like, try stuff out. And we were just trying to survive, like, get something working. And back then, there weren't really great distribution channels. And so we figured out that if we get one user to send it to another user, that's a great way to grow the product. And one of the great best ways to optimize that was trying one thing. And if it didn't work, trying something else and, you know, measuring each version of it. And we didn't even call it A-B testing back then, but that was one of the ways that we really itsy bitsy spider, like climbed our way up that like value curve. Was growth a, like a, a job at that point? I feel like the term growth hacker came out like in the mid 2000s. I think Sean Ellis came up with it or I forget. Right. But yeah, that was a little bit after we were actually working on all these techniques. And we totally frank, a bunch of the stuff we did at Tickle, actually, uh, other people copied. And even the stuff that like Michael Birch worked on in Bebo, like we would use. And so, you know, there were these like few techniques that people would figure out and then we'll go viral, like farming hundreds of years ago. So I want to be like, oh, like you should till the soil and then everyone would be tilling the soil. And so right. it was really interesting. It was a very fun time. But it was also a question of like, you know, how much value are we creating for users? And it, is it, you know, just entertainment? And so, you know, that's one of the things that also pushed me more towards these like B2B apps. Um, yeah, that makes sense. We're going to be talking about growth a lot today, obviously. So I'm curious maybe to level set for you and the audience, like what does growth actually mean to you? When you say growth, how are you defining that? What, what does that mean in your head? Yeah, so I think there's two overall kind of competing definitions of growth at a high level. One is just like the company growing, right? And so the company growing usually means an increase in your primary metric. And the primary metric for a young company might be users or retained users. And the primary metric for like a more a mature company might just be revenue at, at a very high level. And so that's often what people mean when they mean growth as on a company level. And often the expectation of the growth team is to work on that in some or maybe all ways. The flip side is that I think growth as kind of a function and maybe a set of tools and techniques and then specialization is often more associated with growth techniques, which are really running A-B tests that incrementally improve the product. And so the reason I bring up both of those is that there can be a little bit of tension between them. Some growth teams are expected to just do everything it takes to grow those company metrics. And then other teams are really focused in on like A-B testing a product to make it grow. So there's kind of a little bit of contrast there. Like some growth teams are, are doing things that aren't A-B testing in order to grow the product. So when I say growth, I often mean really focusing on all those like A-B testing techniques to grow the product. But I also generally mean like helping the company grow. And there's a question for any given growth team or growth expert as to like where they fall within that. For instance, I'm more focused on product-led growth of helping the product both grow the users and grow the revenue itself. Like it's your sales team, it, you know, the product itself. Whereas there are other growth leaders who are a little bit more focused on the marketing side or the, the demand gen side of acquisition or growth leaders who are focused even on like yourself, a little more on the marketing side where it's not necessarily around changing the product as much as it is about changing the ethos around the product such that it, it actually grows. So it's a long answer, but that's because there, there are some kind of competing definitions of growth within companies. Yeah, I, I think we'll get to this later, but I feel like a, a single company could have multiple definitions of growth at different times in its it's a life cycle. Depending on how early it is, how many new users are you acquiring every day, right? Like if you're only acquiring 10 new users a day, does it really make sense to run a bunch of A-B tests? It'll take you three years to learn anything. And th that kind of leads us, I think, to the next question, which is a lot of people in the audience right now are probably wondering whether or not they should be building a growth team, right? Is now the right time for them to invest in this? So do you have any frameworks for how to think about if a company is ready to invest? How would you help them answer that question? Yeah, just to start with a one-liner, I feel like you should hire kind of a capital G growth team when you're ready to kind of like iteratively develop your product to increase the numbers. And it's mm -hmm. kind of becoming more of a machine. And maybe it's not a solved problem, but it's clearly a solvable problem. And that's when it's kind of ready to delegate. Before then, the interesting contrast is that on one hand, you should always be growing the company. And so there's a way in which everyone's on the growth team when you think about growing the company. However, a lot of that early growth, it's just so tied in with understanding the customers, understanding the business, understanding the various strategic directions you're probably still choosing from mm -hmm. as an early business, that it's not at the point yet where you can take someone who's an expert in growth techniques and say, hey, go grow this. So what I kind of recommend is that Obviously, perhaps first you should reach product market fit. 
Like growth is not an answer for understanding like what people need to do with your software and why it's great and how you like retain people and get them monetized. So that is your early kind of like founder product market fit effort. So first you should make sure that you have a product that people want, that people like want to keep using and that there's like a somewhat meaningful segment of the market that is interested in this particular product. So you're like, okay, we now have this clear TAM of this type of person that when they get in the product, they love it, they keep using it, they pay for it. And we kind of just need to get more of those people. Then you're on the way towards like a growth technique, growth team. But even when you get that product market fit, I still think there's a way in which you should probably lead it as a founding team or as an early team for a little while, because you're still figuring out like what the pitch is, how to communicate with customers, a lot of the fundamentals of that flow. So even after you reach product market fit, you might do something where you kind of manually optimize the flow as like a small team and maybe even start to build what I'll call like a baby growth team. So not hiring a bunch of exterior people yet, maybe one or two people who know growth, but really building it with your existing team. Just find the people on your team who are more new metric, like the people who love to be in spreadsheets and figure out flows and also business focused. There are people on both on the PM side and on the engineering side who are maybe a little less craftsman specific of just building a beautiful thing and more business metrics focus of like, hey, how does this thing I built affect the business successfully? So you find some of those people and put them together and maybe a PM and a front-end engineer, or, you know, if you have a few more people, maybe a data scientist and a back-end engineer as well. And then that can be your first kind of baby growth team as you're figuring this thing out. Well, one quick question. Are there any metrics that I should be looking at? So product market fit is such a, it's such an intangible, right? So I'm curious if there, if you think there are any metrics where the baby growth team starts to make sense. Is it, Purely from a statistical point of view, maybe it's like you need to have this many users just so you can even run experiments. Or is that not the right way to think about it? Yeah, there's two pieces of that. To really run experiments and like A-B tests at scale, you do need a certain volume and it's a good flag. And so that kind of volume is on the order of like, ideally like tens of thousands a week, which is a lot for a lot of small companies. If mm-hmm. you really want to run these experiments at like a high rate. So sometimes you can run them on your signup flow, but not your monetization flow because you don't have volume. You can run it at lower volumes, but it takes a long time. And so like, if you have to run an experiment for three months to actually get stats sick, you have to ask yourself like, is this a good use of time versus something else? So there's a bunch of like sub techniques you can do with lower volumes, but if you're at very low volumes, you have to a little bit kind of think like, what's the best experience just based on like what other people are doing in market? Like effectively, what's the industry standard? and you have to do these kind of larger experiments if you're going to be numeric and say, hey, what if I take all of the good ideas that are probably good ideas because I see other people doing it and put them together into one whole yeah. better flow and then A-B test that with a whole other flow. You're just not going to have the volume as an early startup usually to A-B test like a heading. You just need to do more macro things. Just to put like a point on that, I feel like this is such an important point, which is early on when you don't have volume, you need to make big swings to see any change at all, your goal might not be statistical significance at that point because you just say, we'll never be able to hit it. So our goal is actually just using our intuition, using our understanding of the customer and trying to make things better. And we're not even looking for, we're not really looking for improvement because we wouldn't trust the data anyway. And then probably soon thereafter, the only changes you can make are huge swings because those are the only ones that you could ever see in the data. Because I think a lot of people, when they think growth team, they think exactly what you're saying, which is like tweaking headings and changing the color of the button and all like the, all the stories people have heard from Facebook's growth team and like that kind of stuff. And very often that's not what you're doing, especially early on. Yeah. And it's just a different kind of style of thing. Facebook and like other, you know, class growth teams, also Pinterest, they just have massive volume because they're social products. And so they have like millions or billions of people using them. Uh, and not necessarily transacting on them and not using them necessarily in a high intent way. And because you have just so much volume and, and frankly, people who are lower intent, which is easier to growth hack really, because in B2C in general, people are kind of bouncing around. They're a little bit, I call it like pinballing. They're bouncing off this, clicking on that. And so if you optimize it a little bit for them, you can actually drive people towards a much better experience quite easily. Whereas on B2B sites, people are very high intent. Like Literally someone's paying them right now to accomplish a task. And so just changing the title or, you know, making something slightly different is maybe not going to like make it or break it for them because they're aggressively trying to figure it out themselves. And so as long as the thing is functional, 
you often like just a slight tweak on it, making it like slightly more attractive won't necessarily change your number. You need to actually make it more functional or like unlock things that were previously very difficult in order to like kind of improve growth on like some B2B sites. So we got a related question from Mortem from Copenhagen. And he was asking if you have like a rule of thumb for how much do you need to earn for a customer, whether like CLV or MRR, before you can really afford to invest in, in a growth team. It's a great question. And um, what you earn per customer drastically changes how you should think about growth, actually. Reforge, run by Brian Balfour, has a really interesting breakdown of this, I believe, in their in their growth series course. And what it talks about is there's effectively two types. There's like three types of products that work, or there's a continuum of products that work that are effectively on the horizontal line between number of customers and revenue per customer. As you might imagine, low revenue per customer, low number of customers is just not enough revenue to really sustain a business. And high revenue per customers and like all of the world's population is really unlikely. Like unless you're selling mortgages, you're not going to get like a lot of money from a lot of people. And so there ends up being this diagonal where you either have a small number of customers, say hundreds, hundreds or thousands with a large number amount of money, say like 10,000, 100,000, million dollars even, or you have it more kind of like small amounts of money, like Dropbox, like $100 a year and many customers, potentially like everyone in the world could be in your town. So you have to kind of figure out where you are on those two axes. And if you're on the side of, you know, a cheaper product with many customers, then you really need some kind of way of reaching those customers that's very cheap because you can't advertise to everyone in the world. It's just too expensive. And so what you want is a to focus on like a PLG motion, an invite system, something like that. So when you see Dropbox and to some degree Slack and others, that's when they have a universal product that's a bit cheaper, you need to have that viral growth to spread and you should focus your growth team there. That's kind of the only way to succeed given your lower dollar amount. On the other side, if you have like an analytics product or some like very valuable, powerful, probably B2B product that you're charging $50,000, $300,000 for, you can afford Google Ads because everyone who converts is worth a lot of money to you. So on that side of it, you want maybe more of a demand gen strategy, or you can even focus it on like little pockets of high intent users, like going to, going to conferences. Like I used to wonder, like, does a conference booth really make sense? But if you're selling a product for a lot of money, just having like the name recognition and getting a few customers, not even converted farther down the funnel, that justifies that kind of investment, even though the volume is very small. Do you think that the type of growth team also changes, like the style of growth, the people you need to hire, depending on where you are along that, that curve? That's exactly right. And so really, if you're trying to kind of, it's called like kind of like whale hunt, if you have like really right. big customer or only a few of them, then you might want like a demand gen marketing team. Demand gen meaning like advertising on, you know, Google and Facebook and really trying to like get people into your site. And you might want to do ABM, like account-based marketing. That's where you take like a list of companies or even a list of people and you say, hey, these particular people, I want to see my product. And so you could literally target just the CMOs of the top Fortune 500 companies and say, those people, you know, are the people that I want to like get in here. Or even people who just raised a series B because they might be at the threshold where they can afford and need your product. And so you can go really deep with some of those people. On the other end, you probably want people who are a little more kind of like Facebook, Pinterest, like Dropbox, this kind of scaled growth approach. If you really need people to invite people, like one thing I've seen recently is a service that helps you take screenshots and annotate them and send them around. And then you're not going to pay that much for that kind of service. And it's an inherently viral service. Like you, you're, you're doing something that you send to someone. So for that, something like that, you really want maybe Dropbox or Airtable style, like a more viral growth person to help you send to the most people convert those people into users themselves and go and go. Calendly also has the same kind of motion where it's an inherently viral product and you want to scale it that way at like a lower ACV. Yeah, this is, so this is getting into some specific weeds here, but I'm curious, I'm curious how you think about this because you mentioned Airtable is kind of like the viral uh, growth, right? And I think that's true for some interactions on Airtable, but Airtable is also a whale hunter with six, seven figure deals and I think that is true for a, a surprising number of B2B SaaS products out there, right? As, they, as B2B SaaS products are getting more and more joyful to use and, and delightful, and the, they are lowering the barrier to new users and, and to getting on board, they look more and more like viral companies, but the ACVs are still really high. 
So that's a magical balance if you can pull that off. But I don't know, how do you think about that? Like for a company like that, I bet there's a lot of those in the audience that are building some B2B SaaS that looks and feels like that. How do you think about that challenge? It's a really interesting one because I think a lot of people saw the old enterprise software, which way back when was actually stuff you'd install on-prem. And people thought, oh, that's the old way of doing it. I don't want to be signing these million dollar contracts and like literally racking servers. And so I'm just going to go totally modern. I'm going to be the Dropbox. But then after being the Dropbox and having like all self-serve and pushing it that way, they ended up realizing that actually we're making a lot of money from these large enterprise deals. Like these are really meaningful for us. And where I think a lot of people have ended up is often having sometimes a free tier just to like get people in the door. And then mm-hmm. very often a self-serve tier, which is really not meant for core monetization. Like it's really not a massive part of their balance sheet but it gets people in and paying and able to receive like a higher level of service because they're paying and it makes sense for the company to provide it. But even that is really a place for kind of accounts to develop into potential enterprise accounts. So one thing you're seeing now is a lot more data analytics with how are these accounts developing and when should my sales team talk to them? Kind of almost farming accounts of like these like low level accounts that are still getting value to be clear, like the end user and end companies in many cases are still like, okay, great. I'm running on X. Like this is helping my business, but waiting for those companies to hit some inflection point where it's like, okay, maybe you need our enterprise tier with even more power. and like a more interesting ACV and a higher level of service. Like we're going to come and help you implement it and get even more out of our software. So there's companies like Popus that are going out and actually helping companies look at their analytics stack to try to figure out when people flip over to that like sales ready mode. So I feel like that's kind of like, Andreessen also talks about like the new GTM. One of the most interesting versions of this that I've seen is like open source software. So mm-hmm. there's a software, right. uh, I think Metabase does it and Kong does it, where they literally have free open source software that you install on your own server and it kind of does the service for you. So like for Kong, it's front-ending your API and for Metabase, it's like a basic analytics platform and you just run it yourself and kind of fall in love with it, build your company on it. And then when you're like, oh, I wish it did X, then the company's like, hey, we have an enterprise tier for that and we can host it for you. We can do all these things. Yeah. Companies are like, okay, great, let's do that. But before that, we like give you value first in this free software. So that's kind of a, another interesting, you know, PLG motion that's, you know, coming a little more to the fore today. Right. We often talk about how open source and PLG from a go-to-market point of view are almost entirely the same just somewhat different audiences. And so, but somehow we haven't brought those conversations together. So I, I'm really glad you mentioned that. And I know, Anne, somebody in the audience had, had a question. We have Ori Bedesh, and he is the founder and CEO of a portfolio company of ours, Datos Health, which is a remote patient monitoring for patients in, in healthcare. And he had a question that was related to this. So Ori, the floor is yours. Hi, Anne. Thank you. So I, I just wanted to ask, I, I'm reading a lot of materials about PLG. My company is a B2B sales cycle of above about one year and deal size of above 100K. Do I even need to look further on, on PLG? Like, it's, is it even relevant to, to companies in, like Dados? Or like I'm, I'm all the time wondering if I can learn anything from the PLG in my style of business of such a long sales cycle and, and in a B2B approach? It's a great question. And I, I guess my immediate answer is like, it might not be the most focal thing for you. However, I think it can be instructive to use some of the kind of, let's say mindsets or like approaches of PLG for your business to see if they're helpful. So one thing PLG tries to do, it's, I almost think of it as like, make the computer or your website your sales team. Like how can your website sell people on the value prop, get them started, and maybe even get them monetized? So monetization might be hard at your level because it's such a big check that people actually want to talk to someone. But it could be that if your website has some capability to do like kind of like a product-led monitoring or something, like the most simplistic thing I could just imagine for you is maybe someone can authorize their Apple health records to your website. And Apple, you know, with your, your watch and everything, it tracks your heart rate, it tracks your steps, et cetera. And then if it just puts that in some shared location that then doctors can check, that would be like the, probably the baby version of your service. And but then you can like track your patient and see how much they sleep and how much they walk around just with this Apple watch integration. And that's something you could do like completely hands off. I'm not sure that's valuable for your business or is necessarily an on-ramp for your customers, but that's an example of something you could build where you kind of give people. In some ways, I think of PLG as if you go to the store and they give you like the little sample 
and you have a little bite of it and you're like, oh, this is really tasty. I never thought about buying this food before, but you like it so much that then you buy the whole package. That's a little bit PLG. Give them that little bite that makes them want to buy the entire enchilada, so to speak. And the trick with that is the bite has to taste good. It has to be big enough to be interesting and small enough that they still want to buy the whole package. <laughs> Some of these companies, you if you give away too big of a burrito, no one wants to come into the restaurant. I have another question um, that will get first. Thank you. Do you have any stats or data about PLG? Well, one of the things over there is that the decision-making of buying the software is going down the ladder, meaning that in, in prior it was a VP, now the director can buy a software. That's one of the key assumptions around PLG. Do you have any stats around that? Like in what rate are we going down in, in terms of the decision, software decision buying? I don't have stats on that. And I think it's very different per industry. I think there's a few different ways of doing it. One is complete bottoms up where like Dropbox, someone would just buy it with their credit card, which usually means it has to be under about a thousand bucks, like ideally under 800. Then someone would just go buy it and then later be like, let other people use it and expand to the company. And maybe eventually it comes back to an enterprise deal where, hey, we want to actually get domain capture, et cetera. Then there are also ones where kind of everyone in the company can trial it. They can try it out and decide that like, this is valuable. We should buy it and kind of make the case, like champion it towards their leadership. So Airtable falls kind of between the first bucket and this bucket. And then there, of course, are classic like top-down motions like Workday or whatever, where you simply have to get VP-level buy-in to start. Like Amplitude tries to do this as well, where you could get like a small group or a little department on it and then expand the whole company. I don't have stats on that. And I think it, it is very different per, per industry. I do think it's instructive for everyone to think of how can my current sales cycle be kind of more microized and like more distributed. Like could even my salespeople do something that's one quarter of the effort that could start to get people interested? Even things like webinars. Like, can I have like a webinar once a week that I invite everyone who comes to my site to like join just so they get a taste of the product? Like how can I microize like my current growth loop? Thinking about what else we were thinking about talking about to Ryan, a lot of the conversation is around okay, you've decided to build a growth team. Where in the org should it sit? Who should you hire, right? It's all this tactical stuff. So before we get into that, I want to talk to the people out there who are like, I don't think I'm ready for a growth team. So for them, if you're not ready, what should you be doing? Yeah, so as I was saying earlier, the first thing to do is reach product market fit. And as you correctly highlighted, it can be nebulous whether you reach product market fit. I think the easiest threshold that I have is if you're not fighting for each customer, but the customers are kind of happening at some level and you feel like I need to get some of this obvious stuff off my plate, like, oh, this week we had another customer. We're just like, we have to onboard the customer. Like, I know how to do literally all of this and it's just a lot of my time. Hmm. So someone obviously perhaps anything like that where it's fully understood, you should just delegate it to someone else. You should make sure that someone else, not the founders, are working on this, these kind of obvious things that now we've done like 10 or 20 or a hundred times. And eventually more and more elements of like the whole like sales cycle growth loop will look like that. You're like, oh, I know how to have these first conversations. I know how to like onboard them. I know how to expand them. And like more and more, I should like be delegating it to my team. And then beyond delegating to your team, you should be productizing it. Like first, can someone else do it for me? And then second, can the product do it for me? Like. Could I actually just build a flow that would onboard people or build a flow that would convince them to sign up? You know, in some ways, like product-led growth is like another layer of delegation. And so that's what I'm looking for. As long as you're like hand building these things, and as long as like you don't know how to do it, like if you only have like a 25% success rate or something, and you feel like each time it's different, then it's really hard to like PLG it or to hand it off to a growth team. But if you feel like, hey, I'm making these tweaks and they're working, that's a great opportunity for a growth team. Um, so I'd wait for product market fit and then try to build up, like I said, like a, a small group of people who are more numeric. And two of the things you want to do early is get kind of your growth loop and your data infrastructure right. So one of my refrains is that for a growth team and even a company, I would say, is almost like water for a sports team. Like it's completely not obvious that this is like a core component of their performance. But if they don't get it, they don't perform because they simply don't have like the internal supplies that they need for their body to function. And I think data is the same thing for a company. If a company doesn't have data on the way it's working and what's happening, and especially a growth team, then it's going to be really hard for them to get their jobs done and make good decisions and move quickly. So one of the things to focus on as an early product leader or founder is making sure that you instrument, you have data on what people are doing, how they're doing it, 
You have a report cutting people by where they came in, how much success they saw, where they dropped off in the flow, what button they clicked eventually. And then you also have a, some idea of a growth loop. Like how are people coming in, succeeding with your product, sticking around or leaving? And like, where are the gaps in that versus industry standard? Super tactical. When do you think a, a company should be instrumenting event tracking? And what's the strategy there? Like at what level of granularity should you implement it? Yeah, it's a great question. Let's see if I can give you a great answer. I think pretty much when you care about something and there's too many to like understand just from like talking to customers or looking at the data manually. And probably when you get to the order of like thousands a week of anything, you should probably have instrumented even less if they're like really high ACV. The reason it's important is that pretty much whenever you instrument something, you have a pretty good chance of increasing it by like 10 to 20% or noticing a decrease of 10 to 20%. So if there's anything in your product where you care about that, then you mm. should instrument. So if you literally have like 10 customers a month, then one customer, it might be 10%. And it could be that you maybe don't care yet because next month you're just gonna get another customer and it's just not kind of macro enough that it matters at your level. Like you'd rather spend your time just hunting down more customers because each, each month maybe it's growing by 30%. But if you're getting like 100 customers a month, or those customers are really valuable to you. And, you know, making sure that that pipeline is working is more important than other things going on in the business, then you would want to instrument. And I'd recommend that even early in a company's journey, you at least make like a, a five point flow instrumentation. Like how many people are showing up at the top of the funnel? How many people are signing up or activating? How many people are paying? And then how many people are retaining? So just some basic pirate R metrics kind of thing to understand like your funnel the reason that's exciting is that it allows you to look at something. It allows you to see what the gaps are. It allows you to share with your advisors in a meaningful way what's going on with your business without them having to literally look at like every number. So I, I think something like that you should do relatively early. Like once you have any kind of stream of customers rather than like simple individual customers that you're selling personally. Awesome. So we now have Joe Johnston, who's one of the co-founders of Base, an Angular portfolio company that's based in Belfast. And he had a few questions for you. Hey, Darius. Thanks very much for all this information. It's been super valuable. I have one particular question to begin with, which is you touched on that you do a lot of AP testing. I was just wondering how you manage those experiments. Maybe what software you used as well. That is a great question. And one that I get really excited about, as uh, David knows. One of, one, of my, one of the things I worked on a bunch in my career is actually growth team like management and organization. And so I actually built a system to do this that I call Evelyn that's built on top of Airtable that you can actually copy for free. Like you search for Airtable space Evelyn, just like the name, you'll find a template base, which is kind of like a little mini app yep. in Airtable that helps you run your growth team. And so the, there's a bunch of points to it, but more or less what it allows you to do is put in ideas with like a name and description and then size those ideas, say, how big of a win is this? Like, like low, medium, high, how much effort is this low, medium, high? And then it scores that and gets you like the high, high win, like high win, like lower, medium effort experiments to the top. And then those experiments, you do another pass on and you specifically opportunity size. You say, I think it's going to be a million dollars or like 10 million users or like whatever the, the opportunity size is of this particular experiment, like in your own metrics, you can actually put your own metrics into the system. Then with that, those top opportunities, you would actually go and like sort those again and take the topmost three or four at a time and then prioritize those to execute, execute them. And you can track them to the system and then put in like what you actually got. If you're running an A-B test, formal A-B test system, or you can still use the system opportunity size them and just do them if you don't have the volume to actually A-B test them. And then you put them in like a completed area. And so it, it's really like a birth to death growth tracking system that really focuses on this kind of t-shirt and then numeric opportunity sizing that I think is really fundamental for a growth team. Because I think one of the ways you differentiate yourself as a, a product leader in general is you actually come up with at least double, if not you know quadruple, the number of ideas that you could do versus the ones you actually do. Like you want to make sure that you're coming up with a big list, prioritizing them based on a sensible algorithm, and then executing your absolute best ideas rather than your executing your first ideas. So that's the system that I've used. It's especially optimized for like an at scale, like numeric growth team, let's say, but you can also use it just to prioritize your work all at like, at like a smaller company. Yeah, no, that's completely relevant. Um, 
especially around prioritization um, and get an overview of what's working and, and what's not. And do you build in analytics to that, to be able to feed back the results or what do you use for analytics? Yeah. One of my goals has always been to connect it directly to an analytics system. I haven't quite got there yet, but in theory with Airtable, you could, you could actually pull an external data source, connect it to that experiment and have it auto-populate, but you could usually the volume of these things, you're not running like hundreds of hundreds a week. So you can do it manually as well. But more or less, I recommend you just get like a great analytics system, Looker, or there's a number of others on the market, of course, Amplitude, some degree Tableau. If you have a great analytics system, you can run the A-B test there. If you really want the A-B test to kind of be run for you and not have to do the math on it, Optimizely has some great systems and tools, as does, I think, LaunchDarkly. And then you can just plug it into your system and effectively it just tells you the result. But then you can plug it right back in there. To David's point earlier, if you get really large wins, like 40%, you can actually go stat sig on those even when it's a very low volume. Like you can do like a 20% win on like just like a hundred successes on each channel. My joke is that if you're interviewing two chefs to create burritos at your restaurant and one chef makes 120 burritos in a day and the other chef makes 100 burritos, you can be pretty sure that the 120 chef is like the faster chef. Whereas if you have like 105 burritos and 100 burritos, then you might not be so sure. And so like there's these kind of like orders of magnitude where you can still be sure even at lower volumes. Awesome, thank you. So we got another question from Ricardo Chiarelli, and he's the founder of Mellowworks based in Milan. And he's wondering for early stage startups, how do you make users stick around, especially at the very earliest stages? Yeah, making users stick around at the earliest stages. I think a lot of it comes down to doing things manually. One of Paul Graham's quotes is do things that don't scale. And I think that really makes a lot of sense for a very small startup. And there's a few reasons. So just to give an example, I think a lot of it comes down to just human connection. One of my jokes is that the top of the world and the bottom of the world are just humans interacting and we've only systematized the middle. <laughs> and I think that's true of startups too. When it comes down to it, your biggest clients or your earliest clients are both, they're just humans using your service and you connect with them as people. So I think Superhuman, to its name, I guess, does this really well. and. When you sign up with Superhuman, especially in the early days, it would say just like, hey, like, come talk to the founder about using our service. And you're like, okay, great. And you schedule time with him and, uh, and you'd be there and you just talk through like how the service works, why to use it, how to onboard, why it's special. And getting that kind of personal connection massively increases people's likelihood to use the service, understand it, retain all that stuff. One of the experiments we ran at Airtable that was really successful is after people would pay us for a self-serve plan, in some cases for high value customers, we would just go talk to them. We'd be like, hey, Sam, you just bought this service. Would you like to talk to us about how to get the most value out of it? And obviously they're pretty high intent. They just whipped out their credit card and they're like, yeah, let's chat. And then having chatted, they have a much higher chance of sticking with the service because now they know how to get the most value from it. And it's worthwhile for our time too, because these are people who like are clearly high intent. So that's just a, a deep dive example of one obvious place in retrospect that it makes sense to like really go deep with your customers. But if you really have just a handful of customers, it makes sense to go deep kind of all the time, like during onboarding, while they're checking it out, as they're first paying, as they're ramping up their other team members, often selling it within their team is one of the most difficult steps for a lot of these B2B products. So being there for that. And the reason this is valuable for you and not just your customers is you really want to learn from them in these early stages. Like every time they're excited or scared, you want to write that down somewhere, distribute that to your team, I'd have everyone understand that like, oh, I love the fact that your analytics software is faster than the other ones on the market, but I'm worried it doesn't have this like one powerful feature that we need. You need to aggregate that from everyone because you need to see, oh, half of our customers need this powerful feature. We need to go build that immediately. Or everyone's worried about X, but that's not even a valid worry because that's not a problem with our system, but our customers don't get it. So our messaging, our marketing needs to communicate that this is not a problem. So these detailed interactions are going to really help you build your business in like maybe a not scalable way at that time. But it's really fundamental for an early business to have that connection, like both for the customer success and for the business product direction success. Yeah, it, it reminds me back to when, Duras, when you first joined us at Airtable and how we had just started experimenting with doing more high touch onboarding, high touch, like that, that experiment you just named as well. And how so many of the growth product ideas like that your team executed on came from customer onboarded calls. It's like the idea for how to change the product came from talking to the customer, recording those things diligently and realizing that 
yeah, look, a lot of these things can be solved through better marketing or, or other things, but a whole bunch of them could actually be solved by improving the product. And there's a broader organizational challenge here, which is how do you collect all of this information from customers and store it in a place and, and distribute it to the right people and make decisions based on it? And that is just a really hard thing to do well. And it's hard to do it over time. Early on in the early stages, that's the easiest time to do it because you as the founder, are you're doing it all. So like you can keep it in your own head. You don't need to solve the organizational distribution challenge in the same way. Yeah, just to do a fun little deep dive on that, one of the weirdest wins that we got at Dropbox was I instrumented the the flow for, for signing up for Dropbox business and made sure that we had tracking on every little piece of it, all the errors. We actually had some error tracking, but we never looked at it because the actually the aggregation on the reporting side was too hard for the PMs to use. So I fixed that. And then one thing we found is that people actually weren't entering a name for their Dropbox organization when they were signing up for Dropbox business. And we were like, that's super weird. Why is this name field coming up as invalid? Because as long as you put in like a string of like alphanumeric characters, like, or actually any characters, I think it would be a valid name. Any name at all, like a D would be a valid name. And so we're like, why can't people put in like a thing for this name? And we didn't understand it. It just was a really weird error. But like that got us this like, huh, what's up with the name field? And then we'd go into user chats and we'd walk through the flow and that gave us the kind of awareness that when we watched them fill out the thing, they'd be like, name, what is the name? Like, is this my team's name or is it the company's name? Now that we knew it was a problem, we'd watch them stumble over it, which we would previously watch and not realize it was a problem. We're just like, oh, this person particularly doesn't know it. But then we realized this is actually, everyone doesn't know the name. Like, is it marketing? Is it company? Is it, right. is, what do I put in this field? So literally all we did is after we said, this could be your team or the whole company, and you can change this later. And that really unblocked people because people worried that they were locking this name, like their Twitter handle, and it would never change and they'd get mm. it wrong. So they literally bounced off the entire flow because they didn't want to do it wrong. So by adding just that little extra, like this is what this thing is, we actually made $2 million. Uh, <laughs> now, that's a small percentage on a large thing. And, right, right. It's, it's helpful when you have the scale of Dropbox. Yeah. Yes. And so even little ones are big ones there, but like, and the reason I bring it up is that's the level of nuance sometimes that I think one of the aspects of a growth mindset is to go one level deeper and say, okay, like when someone gets back to you with like a puzzling perspective on a little thing, maybe realizing that's like a black cat in the matrix. It seems really minor, but actually is indicative of like a bigger problem that you might need to fix. And I, look, I know we, we only have about 10 minutes left here and I feel like it's useful to get a little tactical on building a growth team. So kind of wanted to transition to that. For those in the audience who are thinking about, we're eventually going to have to do this. How should we go about it? Let's say we've decided to invest in a growth team. First things first is who do you hire? Yeah, I would say like the kind of like a good starter growth team, if you want to like get into it a bit, is probably one PM, one front end engineer, and then one full stack engineer, and then one data scientist. That's like a really great four person kind of starter growth team. And I'll go through the reasons for each of those. You need the PM to figure out what are we doing next, prioritizing that list, pulling together the idea across the company, looking at other products to figure out what's best in class to look like, pulling that together kind of notionally. Obviously, the engineers to like go build the thing. And then the reason you want the front end engineer is very often the first set of growth wins is a little more kind of like just a front end change. Like, what if we tweak this flow? What if we move this around? It's a little kind of like, you know, if you're remodeling a house, the first thing you want to do is like paint the walls and change the light fixtures. Like that gets you the biggest win before you start breaking things down. Then you still do want a full stack engineer there if you can, like if you're going to build at least to a four person team, because some of the changes require a little more depth. They sometimes require you to like remove a field from experience, which means other parts of the experience are going to change. And you need someone to think about it a little more systematically. A data scientist is incredibly valuable. Because as I said, like data is kind of like the water of a growth team. It's literally mm -hmm. what kind of allows the growth team to see what's going on today. Imagine what the future could be like. It really is their kind of like flashlight in the darkness to like understand what's going on the site and make changes and then see if those changes made a difference, both positive and negative. One failure mode is a growth team makes a lot of changes, and actually makes the site worse, which is quite possible. So a data person like helps with that understanding and that also validation of impact over time. So that's kind of like that first group. Again, one of the things you want to look for is a real numeric capability, like ability to run numbers and make sense of them and ability to understand basic statistics. 
at least for one or two people in the group, and also a real business focus. One thing I've found is that as I hire people for growth teams, if people are true craftsmen, like on the engineering side, they want to build like the most complicated, most beautiful, most powerful system. And on the PM side, they just want to make something that like is just going to stand out and like make people like attracted to their product and really like build something that no one's built before. Those people often don't succeed on growth teams because it's a little more of kind of business focused work that may not have a result that is like, frankly, meaningfully different in an exterior fashion to the world. But it might be very different from like a conversion and success point of view to the business. So you want that kind of like business focus um, people on that team. And oftentimes, ideally, a growth team is sourced primarily internally to start. So people have the local context and the local relationships. Another thing, and then I'll stop is my kind of refrain is that your growth team should focus on a metric that everyone cares about and a surface area that no one cares about. The reason for that is that growth teams, especially early ones, it takes a little while to try out a bunch of things to see what works and will often fail along the way. So when they finally do get to a win, you want to be on a metric where everyone's like, oh yes, that is great that they moved that metric. Like you don't want them work on activation if the company cares about revenue, because then they could actually get a big win there and people are like, eh, it doesn't matter. So you want them focused on pretty much the same metric that you're taking to your VCs to get your next round of funding. That's the metric for the growth team. Then they're going to mess around with a bunch of stuff to try to figure it out. Growth teams are taking something that was already someone's best effort, or at least initial best effort, and they're trying to make it even better. So that takes you know time and like trying out different things. And so it's really hard for them to do that on a surface area that effectively feels owned by a different team. So if they're messing around with the logged in homepage and the core product team feels that they own the logged in homepage, there's just gonna be a lot of butting in heads that's gonna slow the teams down and it's gonna really harp the, the chances of success in growth team. So that's why I often recommend that growth teams start either on the revenue generation area, like the conversion page, the pricing page, et cetera, if it's more of a self-serve or on the onboarding, which usually teams are not looking at because they don't look at it themselves. On the onboarding that you only go through once, it's actually very powerful, but often like, you know, an afterthought for core product teams. So those are the areas I recommend people start on just so they don't conflict with other teams. And then you do have to give them some time. I think of growth teams a little bit like a laser, like they're incredibly accurate and they can do things that no other tool can do, but you do have to give them a lot of power and you have to give them a little bit of time on target so that they can have their effect. And so that probably is like six months or even a year if they the growth team's got a bunch of data set up work to do. I, I was thinking as you're talking about the the types of people that are good, the the metrics that you should be focused on. How do you think about comp for growth teams? Like, do you think that they should be bonused based on moves to core metrics, or is that anathema to the the way you should approach it? Yeah, don't pay them until they double your traffic. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, I actually haven't seen as many results-based comp packages for growth people. I think partly because kind of like marketing, it's something where like you're judged on your output at some level. However, mm -hmm. there's a realization that you're not able to move it within quarter immediately. And so it's a little bit harder to have that kind of sales style variable comp. Yeah. It is true that their people are able to move it a lot more. The other thing is it's a little more of a team sport. Like with sales, you can have your own like region and you either like rock or don't rock on your own region, somewhat independently of other people. Whereas growth is a team effort, not only for the growth team itself, where it takes data and product and engineering, but also for like the larger company, like the core yeah. team of people on those services, they also do need to kind of collaborate well with the growth team to make this happen. And so I think for those reasons, it feels a little bit weirder for either the growth team or individual people on it to be comp that way. So one thing I think makes sense is for the company to have like a revenue goal or like a growth goal and everyone maybe, or at least like all the product engineering team is come based on like, hey, did the website as a unit or the business as a unit get to this growth goal? And then a lot of that growth, frankly, is on the growth team. I mean, it's like the growth team is effectively responsible for that. And so the whole product org now is like growth team go, you know, the for a soccer team, right? Like your forwards are primarily responsible for making goals. But like the whole team needs to get the ball to the forward such that they can go make that goal. And they also need to defend and et cetera. They need to keep the side up. They need to keep the side secure. So it really is this full team effort. And so that's one of the ways I've seen it work of like, let's all go get this revenue together with the growth team a little bit like leading the charge. And then we're all pumped on that based like annual goal yeah, of the year. That makes a ton of sense. You talked about how like the first growth hires 
should probably be internal transfers. You kind of explained that. I'm sure a lot of people are thinking about well, like what next? Who do we hire? So I'm curious at your point of view, what are the companies that have the best growth talent right now, especially in that B2B SaaS space? Like where, where should we be fishing? Yeah. And I think even if we're early growth team, it could be really valuable to have some people of lots of local context that have been there two years. And then maybe one or two people who are like just growth experts from other companies that you want right. to emulate, like your similar totally. type of growth. So to your point, you want to think about what type of growth you have. Remember that curve we have with like high ACV or high volume. And so if you're on the more high volume side, you probably want to look at places like more PLG growth, like Dropbox, Slack. And then if you want to, if you're kind of a little bit in the middle where you have that kind of like self-serve funnel that like leads into an enterprise motion, that's kind of like an Airtable or an intercom. And then if you're on that upper end, like very high ACV, and so it's maybe less of a growth team, more of an ABM exercise. And also you really want to work very closely with sales because at the end of the day, sales is really doing a lot of that work still. And so that's really some of those enterprise companies like, you know, ThoughtSpot, Snowflake, like it's a very different type of growth if it is even growth, frankly. But you want companies that think that way because one problem sometimes with growth teams is if it's a sales-led motion at the end of the day and the growth team is just messing with the website without that sales connection, it can kind <laughs> of like, things can drop in the middle. So you really want a growth team that's very sales-focused. At Airtable, we effectively had one team that actually was very connected to the sales team and then other teams that were a little more kind of PLG product-centric. And that was helpful just on a people basis because like you right. can be friends with everyone in the org simultaneously. So we had one group that would actually go to sales meetings, talk with the sales team. The sales team would actually come to our meetings. And so we really had that deep connection. And then other teams have that same thing with core product where they were just like on the same page as core product. So that each one has their kind of sister team. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Well, unfortunately, we are at the end of the hour. Want to close things out. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. And thank you, Darius, for taking the time. Great session and really enjoyed learning more about growth. Learned a ton from you back in the day and still learning a ton from you every single day. So thanks for coming. Yeah, always a pleasure. Great chatting with you. Thank you so much. And audience members, we have a great session coming up. It's going to be about building a ranked tech company led by Anath Guez and Nera Meidav, the CEO of Papaya Global and CEO of Vault Platform. You don't want to miss that one. All right. Thank you all so much and have a great day. Bye. Thanks, everybody.